The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at Hebrews 5, 7-10 and 1 Peter 2, 21-23, our focus will be 1 Peter 2, but I want to read Hebrews 5 as well, which relates and certainly speaks to this issue. So put your finger in both of those, Hebrews 5 and 1 Peter 2, reading first from Hebrews 5, verses 7-10. to In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of of Melchizedek. And then turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think we'll back up and start with verse 20. 1 Peter 2, 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed." For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask for eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and his sufferings for us. Help us to take to heart these things, even in this time we have now. And may your spirit work to help us to grasp your truth. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. We're considering the Apostles' Creed, and we consider tonight that phrase, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. The sufferings of Jesus Christ include all that he experienced in his earthly life from his birth to his death to accomplish redemption. His sufferings include his crucifixion and his death, of course. In fact, his death was the climax of his sufferings, and we we will look specifically at his crucifixion and death in two weeks. The Creed states that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, which that statement roots the sufferings of Jesus Christ in history. 
It was not imaginary. It was not metaphorical. The sufferings of Christ are rooted in time and space. He suffered as a man, the God-man. And this statement also connects Jesus' suffering to this unjust exercise of power, of political power, which Pontius Pilate exercised. The sufferings of Christ were unjust. They were wrong, and yet we know that God was sovereign over it as well. In fact, just reading from the book of Acts, the two places in Acts chapter 2 and in chapter 4, which juxtapose the sinfulness of the authorities who carried out the death of Christ and the sovereignty of God who ordained the death of Christ. It's very interesting to read. Just let me read to you. Follow in in Acts 2, verse 22 and following. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the sovereignty of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then similarly in Acts 4 at verse 27, we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So there's the alliance of all the sinful authorities and individuals Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate as part of God's redemptive plan that was ordained before the foundation of the world. He suffered by the set purpose and plan of God. You might notice that some of the daffodils are starting to sprout. Some of the tulips are starting to come up at my age, I noticed these things much more than I ever did when I was a child. Some of you kids might not have noticed that. If you're sitting here and you think, well, I didn't notice that. Well, you might not think about those kind of things. When I was a child, I really didn't stop to think about that much, unless my parents pointed it out to me. Like, there's a beautiful tree, there's a flowering pear tree, there's some tulips, that kind of thing. I was much more interested in other things, primarily playing, of course. But one of the typical evidences of becoming an adult is that a person takes more notice of these kind of things, is more aware of these kind of things, generally speaking. And that's one thing when it has to do with flowers or tulips or trees, but what if we fail to see or to consider things of greater importance? And our prayer and our desire as Christians who study God's Word and seek to live by the Word of God and the power of the Spirit has to be that we take to heart the things of God, which are to be our food and our drink. In First Peter 2, Peter is exhorting these Christians to silence the foolish talk, the talk of, of foolish men. And he says that they're to do this by doing good. And he speaks in this context especially, we didn't read it all, he speaks to slaves and urges them to bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God, they are aware of God. 
He tells them that this kind of behavior is commendable before God. And it's on that note that he goes into this part that we just read about the suffering of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. What does the suffering of Christ have to do with slaves responding to an unjust beating? Well, certainly Peter is saying that as disciples we are called to follow the example of Christ, suffering in the pathway of obedience to God. But he's saying much more than that. He's speaking also of the saving purposes of the suffering of Christ because Christ suffered for you, he says. Stop and think about that. How do the sufferings of Christ have application to my life, to your life? Scripture often links the suffering of Christ to the suffering of his people, to Christians. We might make a connection between uh, employers and employees because of the verses here, or in verse chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. We can apply this to marriage in some way, this example of Christ. And then it, it, there's even a, a wider reference in chapter 3, in verse 17. If you look ahead, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Talking about suffering for obeying God. Verse 18 Again, linked to Christ's sufferings. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ's death is to be our example, but it is more, it is a saving example. Christ's sufferings actually bring us to God, as we, most of us, I hope, know well. So this evening, I want us to just meditate on this description of Jesus and his suffering for us here, think about his sufferings and make some applications to our own lives as we seek to walk with Christ. And ask ourselves, are these truths about the sufferings of Christ at the heart of my daily walk with Christ? Do I ever stop to think about the sufferings of Christ and their, their implications for how I live Do I genuinely know this suffering Savior? Maybe you need to come to grips with that as we think about this. Do I know? Have I been brought to God through the sufferings of Christ? And we might also ask, when others sin against me, is there any evidence of the mind and attitude of my Lord in my response? Consider first, Christ suffered as the sinless one. Christ suffered as the sinless one. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And then it goes on to talk about his suffering. He committed no sin. And it's interesting that the reference here, the quote is from Isaiah 53, verse 9, but when it talks about committing no sin, it immediately talks about the fact that there was no deceit in his mouth. Reminds me of the book of James when he talks about if anybody is without sin. James says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, to ponder Jesus 
sinless life. He suffered as the sinless one, never offending in any way, keeping all the commands of God every day of his life. And especially here, it highlights not even in word did he sin. All of us, James is saying, knows the difficulty of taming the tongue. Probably all of us can think back to one day this week that there was, it may not have been a big event, but probably something that you said that you wish you wouldn't have said. Maybe you hurt someone who was close to you, or maybe you should have spoken up and said something that you didn't. Out of fear or timidity, you didn't speak a word in season as Christ would have called you to. To think that Christ perfectly kept the law of God. He always spoke the truth. With him, there was never any gossip, never any slander, grumbling, complaining, exaggerating, flattering somebody just a little bit. No word spoken in sinful anger or pride or envy or greed or unbelief or discontentment or hatred. Every word always spoken in perfect love for the glory of God. It just must have been incredible. It must have been incredible for the disciples to be with him nearly every day for three years, just being around a person who didn't sin at all. In his relationships, you think of him with his half-brothers and half-sisters as a child, and the Scriptures don't tell us anything about this. It's all speculative about what that would have been like. In his public ministry, just think with the pressure of those crowds always wanting to be around him. And he, he didn't even have time many times to eat or to rest. He had to, to leave, to go out to a lonely place to try to get away, and they followed him even there. And think of him putting up with those disciples and their dullness of mind and their unbelief. You know, just think how he controlled his tongue, and he loved the disciples, and he certainly spoke powerfully to them and exhorted them when they needed to be be exhorted. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We all probably know how the Old Testament sacrificial system required that the sacrifice, let's say the lamb that was being brought, be an unblemished lamb. You weren't supposed to pick your worst lamb who was on his last legs and bring that lamb to sacrifice to the Lord. You were supposed to bring the best lamb, you know, not one that was blemished at all. And so with the great fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonial system, Jesus Christ was a lamb without blemish or defect. And Hebrews 7 says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Some of you have probably been following the Republican primaries, watching the debates. There was a debate last night again. And, you know, some of the, the media attention given to candidates brings out weaknesses, brings out problems. You know, Rick Santorum is defending some vote from his Senate career that he voted for something that the other people are saying he shouldn't have voted for. And the fact is that all of them have things that they've done that might in some way make them look bad. None is without defect. At least I don't think so. None of us would be. It's a very difficult thing to do. Who would, who would submit themselves to that? You've got to want to be president really badly. 
But just think of it, Jesus Christ, to a much higher standard than even the the candidates for president are subjected to. Jesus Christ was the sinless one. He suffered as the sinless one. And so when when we talk about him suffering, when when it talks about him being reviled in verse 23, and he did not revile in turn, when he suffered, he did not threaten, how much greater of a contrast could there be? Someone who never sinned to be treated this way, to be so unjustly attacked and persecuted and maligned. What an object lesson this is, isn't it, about the state of mankind in sin? It's very easy for all of us to just get used to a certain level of sin, isn't it? We're just used to sin. Often we don't think sin is all that bad just because all of us sin. Jesus was the sinless one. In stunning contrast to every other human who has ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ committed no sin. He suffered as the sinless one. Let's think then about his path of suffering. Our second main point is the perfect submission of Christ in the path of suffering. The perfect submission of Christ in the path of suffering. Verse 23 says that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Remember, Peter is especially addressing here in the context of slaves who are being treated unjustly. And we just think about that context. Think about your life. Have you ever been sinned against? Well, that's an absurd question, isn't it? We know the answer for everybody in this room. Yes, big time, yes. We live in a sinful world. From the day we are born, we interact with fellow sinners. Of course we've been sinned against. From the battles with our siblings at age three to something that may have happened this past week that sticks in our mind. We, as sinners in this world, know both what it means to sin and to be sinned against. I just was with my grandsons yesterday, and if one of them knocks the Lego castle down of one of them, you know what he does back? Yes, revenge. He knocks his down. Show you. They didn't need to be taught that. They're very good at that. We've also learned how to respond in a worldly way, to get even, to fight back, maybe even a preemptive strike against someone. We know how the opposite extreme, self-pity, withdrawing, escapism, avoiding, or kind of a more sophisticated self-righteous judgmentalism, verbal attacks that just are very subtle maybe, or backstabbing gossip. I get good. Just keep on going through these ways that we know how to respond sinfully when we are sinned against. The world's way of responding. But what do the scriptures tell us about the sinless one here? In procuring our salvation and in setting an example for us to follow, Jesus, we're told, did not retaliate. He did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Think of him suffering. 
Think of him standing in silence before the high priests and Herod and Pilate, not answering the charges. Very rarely did he speak. Think of him not resisting or threatening when the soldiers beat him and whipped him and crowned him with the crown of thorns. Think the fact that he answered nothing to the mocking of his enemies as he hung on the cross and they hurled curses at him as the so-called king of the Jews. Instead, Peter says, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's a very key phrase, isn't it? It means that Jesus walked the path of meek obedience to the calling of his father. It means that Jesus willingly submitted himself to his father's will. He trusted the father to accomplish his purpose through the suffering he was experiencing. He knew and believed the father's righteous judgment and trusted that God would vindicate him in his time, in his way. We might compare it to the labor pains of a woman giving birth to a child. There is this pain, there's this agony, but there is the knowledge as she goes through that, that a wonderful purpose is being accomplished. And that helps to sustain her through that. In Jesus' voluntary suffering, he was accomplishing our salvation so he could entrust himself to his Father's care. He was bearing our sins in his body on the tree, and by his wounds we are healed, it says. The word in Hebrew has the connotation of salvation in its full sense, spiritual healing, the healing of our souls from the dread disease of sin. And so let's just step back and grasp something of the magnitude of this. The sinless one suffers. The lamb does not retaliate in return. And in so doing, the gracious purposes of God for our salvation is accomplished. And we can say with the hymn, hallelujah, what a savior. Let's make some applications then. I have three for us. And the first is this. We are called to suffer according to God's will in the path of obedience. You and I are called to suffer according to God's will in the path of obedience. Verse 21 makes this very clear. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. If you have come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you have experienced the transformation power of his sufferings that take us out of darkness into his light that give us new life and the forgiveness of sins and the certainty of heaven, if you have experienced that through faith in Christ, then you are called to follow in his footsteps. The same attitude that Jesus Christ had. When you face injustice, and it's not saying that there, aren't, there isn't recourse at times in this life to face injustice in some way, at the heart of it all, the Christian is not called to revenge. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's true, not only in your actions, but also even in your thinking, even in your mind. In other words, even if you don't actually carry out the vengeance, having the mind of Christ means that we are called not even to be thinking that way. So when somebody pulls out in front of you and you don't run over them, which is good, you don't take the vengeful action, 
If you envision that your car suddenly turned into a tank and you ran them over, that is still some degree of sin. We're rather to be saying, as we forgive our debtors to be imitators of God, uh, his kindness and compassion. And specifically, in Peter here, we're called to follow the example of Christ in entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly, to submit to his will. This doesn't mean just a stoic gritting your teeth and bearing it. It doesn't mean a fatalism, that kind of what will be will be. But it means that you are trusting in a loving and sovereign God that he will do in your life what is just and right. Let me read a quote from Piper about this that I think is helpful. All experiences of suffering in the path of Christian obedience, whether from persecution or sickness or accident, have this in common. They all threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the path of obedience. Therefore, every triumph of faith and all perseverance in obedience are testimonies to the goodness of God and the preciousness of Christ, whether the enemy is sickness, Satan, sin, or sabotage. Some alliteration there. In other words, Piper is saying that as we walk in the pathway of obedience to God, whatever the origin of the suffering might be, suffering is a temptation. It's a temptation. Those things threaten our faith in the goodness of God and tempt us to leave the pathway of obedience to God. And the antidote to that is what Peter is talking about here, what Jesus Christ did in trusting himself to him who judges justly. There's this radical solution that we're to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Secondly, an application is this. We're called to remember Christ's sufferings as the basis of our warfare against sin. I'm not going to go into this at length. But notice verse 24. When Peter is talking about the sufferings of Christ and how it relates to us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. In other words, he saved us. He bore our sins. And what's the result of that? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Literally, having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. That's the description of the fruit of salvation in our lives. Change lives, more and more living to righteousness, living for Jesus Christ. In other words, the sufferings of Christ, his death, of course, but all of his sufferings and his resurrection from the dead are the foundation of our sanctification. It's the foundation of living for Jesus this week. How do you and I get the power to live for Jesus Christ tomorrow? The source of that power is what Jesus did for us, his sufferings. Now, because of that, there's been this decisive change in our relationship to sin, having died to sins. You and I have died to sin. Romans 6 expresses this at great length. How can you sin any longer? You've, you've died to sin. May it not be. Do not say, let us sin that grace might abound. 
you and I must take this to heart. That think that Christians are like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. That movie used to frustrate me because I found out after I watched it the first time that she had the ruby slippers on for a long time. All the, all the whole trek to get the Wicked Witch of the West, she just needed to click the ruby slippers three times. I think Christians can be like that. That we live an impoverished spiritual life to some degree because we fail to remember that we're united to Christ. We died to sin. We've been made alive in Christ. And Paul says in Romans 6, verse 11, Therefore, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. Do not yield your members anymore as belonging to sin, but yield your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The sufferings of Christ are the basis of our ongoing warfare against remaining sin. They should be a part of our daily prayer. Oh Lord, I have died to sin in Christ. Help me then with that power to face the temptations of this day and this week. But finally, an application to draw is that the sufferings of Christ are part of the entrance, progress, and restoration of the Christian walk. The sufferings of Christ and that way of suffering is at the entrance, it's part of the progress in our Christian life, and it's part of the way we are restored in our walk with Christ day by day. Verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. And Peter certainly knew something of straying, didn't he? He denied the Lord three times. He was restored. The chief shepherd of the sheep restored him. The picture here is of the sheep that so easily go astray. And I don't know much about sheep, but I know that we easily go astray. But the closest analogy I can get is to a dog. Our dogs just so easily disobeyed us. You know, one of them, the lab, was much more overt about her disobedience. The corgi was much more subtle. She just disobeyed when we weren't looking. Well, whatever kind of disobedience it might be, the picture here is that sheep go astray. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus Christ suffered for us. He's brought us to God through his sufferings. And the way to initially enter the Christian life is to repent of our sins and turn to faith in Christ, trusting in him. And that's the way progress in the Christian faith is made as well, day by day. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. We call out to God in faith. We repent of the idolatries that so easily ensnare our hearts. And when we fall, when we sin, when we trip up in some way, again, the way of restoration is by returning to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Not to run away from him, not to rebel against him, but rather to stay close His rod and his staff, they comfort us. The sufferings of Christ, they are the way to God. They are the way we continue to walk with God because of his death and resurrection, because he suffered as the sinless one. The pathway of obedience to God for all of us will involve suffering. Every one of us in the pathway of obedience to God whether it's providentially something that comes into your life or whether it's overt persecution for Christ in some way, the pathway of obedience for all of us in our lives is a way of suffering. 
In our suffering, may we entrust ourselves to our Father's loving care, and may we know more deeply the fellowship of our suffering Savior. To him be the glory. Amen. Father, we thank you that Jesus suffered for us, leaving an example. And yet, so much more than an example, actually, by his stripes we are healed. Thank you for the glory of that good news. Thank you for the life-giving message of the gospel. Thank you that in our suffering this week, we know it's not in vain. We know it's not senseless because you, our loving Father, are orchestrating all the events of our lives for your glory and our good. We're amazed that you are able to do that. You are such a great God. We humble ourselves before you. We cry out to you. We pray that we would know more deeply in our experience the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. We know that we want to know Christ. We want to know the power of his resurrection. But so often, we don't know and don't think much about the fellowship of his suffering. So help us to do that. And may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.